0: 233 A.H. Monticello.
1: For Radio Catskill, this is Rosie Starr. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show... Lisa Titus, Sullivan County Poet Laureate from 2020, shares her poem called February. Annie Stanley inspires us to participate in outdoor winter fun that will activate your senses on a Catskill homestead. And Stephanie Phillips finalizes her conversation with Taylor Adam, beginner farmer program manager at Sullivan County Cornell Cooperative Extension. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country. First, news headlines from NPR.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. President Biden says there is more to come after the U.S. military struck 85 targets at seven facilities in Iraq and Syria in response to last weekend's drone attack that killed three American service members in Jordan. And this isn't the end of it, as NPR's Tamara Keith reports.
3: In a statement, President Biden said the strikes targeted Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and affiliated militant groups that have attacked U.S. forces in the Middle East. In fact, there have been more than 150 attacks and attempted attacks in the region since October. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby said President Biden doesn't want this to expand into a wider Middle East conflict.
0: You know, the goal here is to get these uh, attacks to stop. We are not looking for a war with Iran.
3: Kirby said the targets were chosen to avoid civilian casualties and were aimed at hurting the capabilities of those who would harm U.S. troops. Tamara Keith, NPR News.
2: Iran's foreign ministry is condemning the airstrikes, a spokesman saying today characterizing the strikes as an adventurous and strategic mistake by the U.S. that will only increase tension and instability in the region. Today is the first anniversary of the fiery train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. While the Environmental Protection Agency says the site has largely been cleaned up, a stream that flows through town still polluted. From member station WESA, Reed Fraser reports.
4: The derailment and subsequent chemical spill killed 40,000 fish and other wildlife in Sulphur Run. After months of cleanup, many of the chemicals are gone, but the sediment in the stream is still coated in an oily sheen. That worries Chrissy Ferguson. She's been out of her family's house for the past year. Sulfur run flows through a culvert under her house. I want a safe home for my family. Um, That's all I've ever wanted. I no longer feel safe in this home. The EPA is reviewing a plan submitted by Norfolk Southern to clean up the remaining pollution. For NPR News, I'm Reed Frazier in East Palestine, Ohio.
2: With Democrats in South Carolina holding their primary election today, South Carolina Republicans won't be holding theirs until February 24th. In the meantime, former President Donald Trump is seeking to consolidate support from within the party, but he still faces former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Elaine K. Mark with the Brookings Institution says it will be it will likely become increasingly difficult for her to stay in the race.
4: The problem is that her campaign is not really based on ideology.
1: She supports most of the policies that Trump supports. Her campaign against him is that he is a chaos candidate. He's old. It's those sorts of things. So I think it's hard to sustain a candidacy, without a sort of ideological fervor behind it.
2: And from Washington, this is NPR News. Welcome
1: back to Farm and Country. I'm your host, Rosie Starr. On today's show, Annie Stanley inspires us to participate in outdoor winter fun that will activate your senses on a Catskill homestead. Then, Stephanie Phillips finalizes her conversation with Taylor Adam, Beginner Farmer Program Manager at Sullivan County Cornell Cooperative Extension. In her segment, Now You Know, Taylor specifically talks about types of farms. But first, here is Lisa Titus, the 2020 Sullivan County Poet Laureate, with her poem called February. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country.
0: February. My daughter was born on the fifth day, an after-hours bloodletting that freckled my face with rioting red capul- capillaries. She, she came with a yawning stronger than hip bones, a rasp of oak leaves tearing across a field of ice leaving daggers. She bled first on the 19th, first full moon after her 12th birthday, a super snow moon, the wolves howling dead in their throats, heads turning away from shining to behold a mother they could worship. She is not the storm. She doesn't even know the storm is coming, her sticky thighs only an inconvenience, a change of clothes easily avoided if womanhood held her horses, pulled up on those wild mares a little harder. My daughter showed her teeth, her spine of arched fingernails, her body a forest of questions she asks without rest. What will I be? Who will I conquer? Why do you cry? And I wipe my eyes with her hair, recite the kind of prayer unheard by gods as she harnesses these winds, horses she will spur through flurries, blizzards nobody will see coming.
1: That was Lisa Titus, the 2020 Sullivan County Poet Laureate, sharing her poem called February. Her book, First Time Every Time, is available online from Brick Road Poetry Press. We're about six weeks away from springtime and the vernal equinox. Considering the fluctuations in weather conditions, I was thinking about tapping trees for a taste of local maple syrup. Smoky Bell's homesteader Annie Stanley and Laura Silverman from the Outside Institute are actively busy outdoors every season. Annie Stanley is here to tell us about an interactive collaboration coming soon on February 24th.
3: Hello, my name is Annie Stanley. Here we are back again talking about the maple tapping event at Smokey Bells Catskills here in Narrowsburg, New York. This is a homestead that I run just south of Narrowsburg, and I have been experimenting with homesteading maple tapping for almost 18 years now. And we have an event coming up. It's my opportunity to teach people about homesteading, the simplest thing, maple syrup, and inviting people to the property to see the beauty on the Ten Mile River. This event is kind of in the tradition of a community event that people used to gather in the winter for to get outside in the natural outdoors, get out of the house, spend time with your neighbors and friends, gather in the sap house or around a a big campfire with boiling sap in the winter and have meaningful conversations.
1: And it sounds like you're in collaboration with Laura Silverman.
3: Yes, I've known Laura for many years. Uh, She has spent... A lot of time on my property, actually. We've done other events together in the past, foraging events. Now Laura has her outside institute officially with the hub in Calicoon, and we've been talking about this for a while, so we're going to have this event together this year, and she is going to take people for a walk in the Catskills woods of my property and talk about the kind of flora and fauna in the winter, the fungi, talk about the maple trees and the birch trees which are both trees you can tap and I will be guiding people on another tour to teach people actually how to tap the trees, what kind of equipment to use in the old school tradition of tapping and Then we will have ambiently live music, two bands, all-girl rock and roll band, locally transplanted from New York City, the Basic Bitches Band. And also Mike Edison will be playing. He is doing great gospel campfire music.
1: Annie, what about your property is so special that Laura Silverman would like to come to you to do maple sugaring and foraging and touring?
3: One of the aspects of the property is that it's located on the Ten Mile River, and it's very secluded. There is this bucolic setting with the river flowing through it. There's a diverse flora and fauna happening, big bluestone rocks jutting out of the ground everywhere. If there's snow on the ground, we're going to see a lot of animal tracks, which she can also identify. There's a nice flow between the properties. We'll be down at the cabin for the most part, but we're going to take a walk up the road to where the other sap house is with the evaporator, and we can actually see sap boiling There's a lot of different animals and plants. You know, around 4 o'clock every day I see eagles flying up the river from the Delaware downstream. It's very diverse. It's loaded with all kinds of moss. There's also an array of evergreen trees, hemlocks, and white pine. And it's very protected.
1: The event sounds very holistic and interactive. It seems appropriate for families to attend, actually people of all ages, because it lends itself to some natural education.
3: Yeah, we actually had a lot of children last year. I was showing this family how to tap a tree, actually, and instinctively this child who was probably less than two years old, I tapped the tree and the sap started flowing out of the hole. And the child stuck their finger in it and then tasted the sap. And we don't know how they knew that they should do that. It was precious. It's great for kids to interact with the outdoors right now, especially this whole generation that's coming forward is going to have to really be hands-on about
1: protecting the environment. You've planned a day that has a lot of activities. I believe the event is February 24th. Do you feel confident about the weather fluctuations? What are your thoughts on that?
3: It's really hard to tell, and every year it gets more challenging, I think traditionally people would start tapping in mid-January, depending on how much sun their property gets. You need really sunny days and cold nights, and ideally the temperature during the day, you know, still though, above like 35, so the sap doesn't freeze when it's coming out of the tree. But we've been lucky so far the past couple years. There was one year where it was frozen, We weren't getting any sap flow that day, but we still, you know, we had the buckets out in the woods and we had tasting and libations and food and music. You just don't never know. And every year winter seems to come later. So we picked this time because it's usually winter break for most kids and students and uh, a lot of people are up. So it seems to work out for attendance that way and to to have
1: that activity while people are on break. And as you said, the day's activity includes roaming around in the woods that have gentle slopes of ferns and moss growing. So there's a lot of other things for children to do and standing around a campfire Listening to music and having a bowl of chili sounds heavenly in the winter chill of February. The chili cook-off,
3: that's a part of our annual event. We have this chili cook-off contest, so anyone can bring a slow cooker or crock pot of chili and enter the contest. You just have to bring that pot so we can plug it in, and we have judges and usually there's a winner. The first prize winner will win a weekend stay at Smokey Bell's Le Petit Cabin, the 1955 cabin. And everybody just loves to try all the different homemade chilies.
1: It sounds like you've planned a day that's vintage-inspired, community-inspired, and sweet tasting maple syrup, and warm by the campfire.
3: And not to mention what Laura will be making, some maple-infused libations and some savory desserts
1: with maple syrup. We'll suggest that folks visit the Outside Institute website, outsideinstitute.org, for more information on how to register for this event. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
3: A lot of people don't realize that the process of making maple syrup, they might think that maple syrup comes right out of the tree, but it's actually the sap that comes out of the tree, and then we have to boil it for many, many hours. So you'll see that process in the works. You do have to register to attend. Its space is limited, um, so go to outsideinstitute.org to sign up.
1: The location seems convenient. It's uh, located along the Ten Mile river banks and you're in Sullivan County just outside of Narrowsburg.
3: Just south of Narrowsburg on the Ten Mile River, a couple miles out of town. The Ten Mile River flows into the Delaware. It's
1: surrounded by Boy Scout land. It's a really beautiful location. Well, Annie... It sounds like the event will engage all the senses and bring community together in a sweet way. Maple syrup, fires, tracking animal tracks, listening to music. Everything's locally inspired, locally infused. It's an infusion event of a lot of things. Hopefully we'll have snow
3: so then we can make maple snow candy Thanks for taking
1: the time to speak with us. Until then, stay warm.
3: Thank you, Rosie, and thanks Farm and Country Radio Show.
1: Details on the February 24th Maple Syrup Tapping and Tasting event are available online at the outsideinstitute.org.
4: This is Stephanie Phillips with Farm and Country. This morning I'm at the Cornell Cooperative Extension Sullivan County speaking with Taylor Adam. Taylor Adam is beginner farmer program manager and she helps beginner farmers get started. Taylor when you start to think about a product that you're going to grow or I guess raise how can you assess whether there's a need for that product around here?
5: Yeah, I think a good first step is just walking around like a customer and figuring out what's being sold already, who's selling what, where people are shopping, things like that. Like when you start seeing things as like an eater, then you can start seeing where there's gaps. Like, what are things that aren't being sold that I want to buy? Or that you're seeing not as often at markets or not as often at stores. I think really seeing the gaps in the market is a good way to start of like, okay, so what could I fill as a farmer here? Or what could I do that's special compared to the other farms here? Because every farm is selling something special. That's why people come and buy it. So like figuring out your niche
4: in that and where you can fit in. Taylor, one of the factors that comes into play here is the weather and that certainly can put a damper on what you're growing or trying to grow. How can you deal with that kind of uh, uncertainty?
5: I think the best way to do that is really planning. I mean you don't always know what you're planning for weather-wise but having some sort of backup plan or being aware like... Part of farming is paying attention to what's going on around you. So like if I start farming this coming year, I'm like, wow, it didn't rain at all in May and June, and then it poured. So be okay, and then the year before, there was a drought. So always having some sort of backup plan for what's going to happen or keeping in mind that there might be a drought. What would I do if there's a drought? How would I make my business still profitable? How would I still grow things? How do I make sure my animals still have enough water or aren't overheated, I think you always have to have backup plans, and I think sometimes that feels exhausting because so much of farming is planning just what you're trying to do, and then having another plan right around the end is also really difficult. I mean, it's nature, too. She's going to do what she's going to do. So I think it's just like always being prepared to have some sort of backup plan if things go wrong or if you lose a whole crop because of drought or if... You can't harvest your hay because it's rained for days. I think you always need to have some sort of backup plan in your pocket just in case things happen. And I think the other thing is weather can change so quickly, but really trying to pay attention to what it's looked like in the past or at least the last few seasons so you can be like, okay, so this is what happened the last three years. What plans can I create that if I have the same problems I can solve this year? But I feel like the uh, thing about Farming is nature is humbling. You can have so many plans and none of them work. So you just kind of got to be humble about what's going on around you.
4: We had the situation this year where there was a late frost and it totally wiped out the apple crop. So that was something that was hard to deal with. I think maybe diversification is important.
5: Yeah, diversification can always help, and I think it's a good, it can be a really good backup plan for your operation. And there's a lot of ways to do diversification. It can be diversification in your crops. It can be diversification in who you sell to. It can be diversification that you do produce and animals, or orchard and animals, or produce and orchard, or... There's a lot of different ways to do it, but I think diversification can play a key role in having a backup plan to make sure you always have a product to sell that's land-based for your land.
4: Tailor money is going to be a problem for beginning farmers. Are there ways that a beginner farmer can secure financing? That's a hard question. I mean, the reality is if you're starting
5: up, you need some sort of financing to start. There are loans and stuff, but that'll probably be more private loans are coming from banks. The reality, there are some organizations that literally provide startup capital for farmers, like Food Shed Capital is one of them, stuff like that. Say that again. Food Shed Capital, they're an organization that provides startup funding for farmers. But a reality is a lot of the farm service agency loans, you have to be farming for a bit. The NRCS, the National Resource Conservation Services. They have a lot of grant programs for beginner farmers, like you can have barely done anything and get a grant from them. But their grant process is a little longer, so you're not gonna get that money right away. You're gonna have to like wait usually a year to get that funding. So I think a hard part is that startup capital. Once you have started producing and started breaking ground on your property, then you're able to apply to a lot more funding opportunities. And that's grants through the U.S. government, there's the Sullivan County Revolving Loan Fund, that's more of a startup capital, like financial support, the Sullivan County Revolving Loan Fund, they have one for agribusiness. But then there's other places that are like private organizations that provide grant funding for farmers as well. There's a huge range and it can be overwhelming. We have a link on our website just for financial management for farmers and I just have a huge list of like places to apply
4: for for funding. <laughs> It sounds like you had to do a lot of research in order to Mm -hmm. really be able to handle this job.
5: Yeah, a lot of research, but also like stuff is always changing and stuff always pops up. And I feel like there's a lot more coming out now specifically for beginner farmers, which is exciting that there's more money out there for that.
4: It seems like when you apply for some kind of loan or financial support that you need to have a business plan. What goes into developing a business plan for a new farm?
5: I think there's a lot. I think knowing what you want your farm to be and your goals and some sort of mission statement can be helpful as like a starting step for your business plan, like knowing what you want to do on your farm. And I think getting deeper than into it is like knowing what you have already, what assets that already exist. And then with your goals, it's like knowing what you want to produce and knowing what you can sell. Your first business plan should be for your first three years of business. So you should be preparing for three years out. So yeah, but we have resources to help with that. I mean, myself, and then we have another staff member here at CC Sullivan. And then we also have a partnership with the, it's a long acronym, the Hudson Valley Agribusiness. Development Corporation. So we have a partnership with them, and they have specific consultants for business planning, so we can help connect beginner farmers to them as a resource as well. But I think it's really knowing what you're trying to do, knowing your goals, and then also knowing what you are capable of doing and planning that out within your business plan. It's
4: a lot. (laughs) Right. One thing that may be important to some people is the environmental impact of a farm, so how can a beginner farmer assess what that impact might be? I think there's a lot of different ways to assess
5: your environmental impact. Right. There are so many techniques to farming that farm with the land, and I think there's a lot of ways you can research into like what that could look like on your farm. But I feel like assessing your environmental impact will take some time because you're not going to know exactly what you're doing until you see it, which is like a hard thing to say. But I think if you try to plan your farm about mitigating whatever impact you're having on the land, it's like a useful way to start to be like, okay, so we're building this fence, that'll be done. And it's like, we're planting We have to disturb some soil to plant our first bed. So, like, how are we going to make sure that we're not disturbing soil every year, that we're using the same beds over and over again? How do we preserve that soil over time? So I think a lot of it is mitigation, and I think there are so many ways to work with the land, and you kind of have to figure that out based off of your land (laughs) and then based off of what you're trying to do. I mean, there's so much new research out there. And it's not even new research. A lot of these techniques that really preserve the land have been occurring for millennia. It's not new things. It's things that are becoming popular again, like when we talk about rotational grazing and the natural movement of animals on landscape. That's it's not new news. That's been like how animals existed for millennia and how people have managed them for millennia. So there's so much out there, and I think a lot of it is just knowing your land and then working with it and then just doing your research to figure out what would work best for you. A lot of reading the land, I feel like, is part of farming. <laughs> can you tell us how to contact you? Yeah, so my email, I have two. You can contact me at either. My one is tea46 at cornell.edu, and then the other one is beginnerfarmer at cornell.edu. And then my phone number is 845 292. 6180, and my extension is 130.
4: So now you know how to start assessing the value of a particular animal or plant. My guest today was Taylor Adam, who is was beginner farmer program manager at Cornell Cooperative Extension in Sullivan County. If you know a local expert for me to interview, email me at stephanie at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country.
1: We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by a Radio Catskill volunteer, Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guests, Lisa Titus, the 2020 Sullivan County Poet Laureate, Smoky Bell's homesteader, Annie Stanley, and Taylor Adam, Beginner Farmer Program Manager at Sullivan County Cornell Cooperative Extension. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local. To Farm and Country and supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Listen on air at 90.5, on your phone or smart speaker, and online at wjffradio.org. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community supported, science based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org.
2: Greetings, I'm Matt Hurtado. Join me on a journey where pixels meet melodies and controllers become conductors. This is Virtual Soundscapes, a show that transports you to the sonic realms of video game magic. In this journey, we'll uncover the hidden treasures of video game soundtracks from the classics to modern day, and speak with industry veterans. Join me for the debut of Virtual Soundscapes on February 15th at 10 p.m. Only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. Conservatives, there's
1: a reason why all eyes are on you.